2 Corinthians chapter 10, I want to follow along. Again, Paul has to defend his ministry. That's a big part of this whole letter, so we see it quite a bit. Uh, so we're just going to look at the first couple of verses here and then spend most of our time in 3 through 5. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect of us walking according to the flesh. So Paul, defending his ministry, he's, the challenge it seems to be that uh, was to his apostolic ministry. You know, I put a big A there. Uh, the word apostolos just means one who's sent out, but there's just certain guys that were apostles, um, obviously 12 minus 1 plus 1, Judas kind of gets out of there and Matthias gets in there. Paul certainly, uh, possibly James, the brother of Jesus. This is, a, this is a very limited amount of people, but when you think Paul was personally offended too, but the rejection of his authority, he thinks, is a rejection of Jesus. And that's, you know, the ambassador word. Uh, that's the one we had in, in chapter 5. If an ambassador comes to represent the country and you reject the ambassador, you reject the country. So it really comes down to Paul thinks he's really an apostle. Uh, and if you reject his apostleship, he's saying to these Christians, you're rejecting the one who sent him. It's a very strong statement about who he thinks he is. And, you know, when it comes down to he's either right or he's wrong. You know, we think he was right. And that's why we're reading this book. Um, obviously, that was what he was trying to deal with. And the other thing it looks like, it's kind of sarcastic, which we'll get more next week, but it's kind of interesting. God's sarcastic sometimes, too, in the Bible. Um, but uh, they asserted he didn't have a powerful presence to be an apostle. Uh, so they mocked this as a position that's incompatible with Christianity. Now, what we have to be careful when we read this stuff, we, we, I've heard people say, well, then Paul was kind of meek and timid and all that kind of stuff. Well, maybe. Uh, that was the accusation. It wasn't necessarily true. Maybe a part of that was. But they accuse him of being timid um, is the way it's translated here. That's just a word for humility. Uh, it just depends on the context by which it's used, right? Um, it's good to be humble. Uh, that's part of what we're supposed to be. But sometimes too much humility can cause problems too, and that's apparently what they're, meaning that you never say anything ever. Well, that's just quiet. I mean, I don't know if that's humble or not. Sometimes you need to say something maybe or stand up for your beliefs. But notice what he does. He, he talks about the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. He, so notice what he's doing. He's kind of sarcastically slamming these people, which is always fun, I think. Uh, it's always nice to beat your opponents up with a noodle, I think, where they don't even know you're doing it. You know, it's kind of like, because uh, so what he's, he's, he's looking back. In fact, you know, Jesus describes himself as this tapaneos, this timid or humble way in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly, that's that term there. So lowly in heart, humble in heart, some translations say. Um, and you will find rest for your souls. But when we think of Jesus, we have to be so careful with these terms because his, his character is gentle 
and meek. Now, we, we hit that word meek before. We usually do this uh, when we do this Sermon on the Mount or other. But meekness is not just withdrawn quietness. Meekness, if you look at the word, is really a, an idea of having a, a maybe more of a quiet and gentle strength of character, knowing when to speak up and when not to. Uh, and Jesus was really good at that. Um, he doesn't all, if we take meek as just being mild and lamb petting, and which is, I'm sure he pet some lambs, I don't know. Um, Jesus wasn't always that way, was he? Uh, I always tell people to go to Matthew 23, uh, and you're welcome to do that, and you're welcome to text me if you read it, <laughs> which is fun if I get a text. Hey, I read what you said. Matthew 23, uh, he is not being what we would see as meek or gentle there. Uh, you, I'll let you read it. Um, he's in their face, and he does that sometimes. Was he meek and gentle or just gentle when he was turning the tables over in the temple? You know, again, this is a quality of character when you're trying to have relationships with people that want to have a relationship with you. Uh, when we come to the table, God says, I want to stoop down and give you grace, so there's a gentleness there. But if you want to reject him, that gentleness, I mean, what good is it? You know, it doesn't mean you have to be mean, but what Jesus said is sometimes you just move on. Um, so d we just have to be careful with that. Um, it's just, it's the quality that Jesus shows when he sees somebody who is down but wants uh, God to help them. That's the people he was really, really compassionate. So compassion's part of this, too. Uh, and Jesus knows that. So what Paul's doing here is he's, he's, pointing to the irony out to his opponents that accuse him of this timidity. What they saw as a liability was evidence that Paul was like Christ. That's kind of what he's doing in a kind of a backhanded way. So it actually substantiates the legitimacy of his apostleship, doesn't put it down. So I, I, this is a really good turn of a phrase. I thought it was well done. Um, that uh, you wonder if when they read this, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I don't know. When, when he gets there, we'll see. And then you get this spiritual war stuff, which uh, we're going to look at a little bit uh, more in depth here, because I think, I think these scriptures will help you uh, with your uh, way of looking at this, because I think we look at this wrongly often, uh, looking at these as power encounters, and there's just way too many movies out there about how angels and demons and their types are beating each other up and all that, and they're fun movies, I like them, um, but how close is that what we're really supposed to focus on? So, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, which in the flesh, in this case, your, your translation may say in the fallen nature. It's just things done of God. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So this is spiritual war. He's responding to the Corinthians that this ministry was successful. He says this in other places. He's, call, he's called his gospel ministry as a parade of victory. You know, and we, we hear that there's even uh, ministries that call themselves victory in Christ. And that's fine. We do have victory in Christ. Well, victory over what? Well, over the forces of evil and sin and death. That's the idea. Um, he's used similar military analogies. We'll look at the one in Ephesians 6 in just a minute. And in his belief and the way he writes, his apostolic effort was a war he was going to win. 
um, that's a, you know, you probably heard that's kind of a pastorism. You know, I've read the whole book, and I found out that we win in the end. You know, there's days that you wonder, right? You know, we, we may not w win the battle or, or the little skirmishes, but we will win the war. You know, that's the idea. Read the end. Read chapter 19 of Revelation. Um, just as an aside, if you read that, there's actually no war. Jesus comes on this white horse, and there's all these metaphors, and this big army's coming, and here come the bad guys, and here come the good guys, and they capture them. Doesn't even look like there's a fight. It's kind of, think about the, when Jesus uh, deals with uh, uh, somebody who has an evil spirit in them. Does he have to, like, wrestle him and, you know, get him in a suplex and submit him? And all? No, he just says, you, out, and it's over. That's kind of what <laughs> Revelation 19 is. Uh, it's kind of the, the same, same thing here. So you're, you're sure to win, but the battle is hard sometimes. Um, and he's insisting we don't, we don't wage war like the world does. Now, I don't, you know, he's talking about, you know, we don't use intimidation, coercion, and certainly violence that's normally associated with worldly authorities. Um, Paul never tries to manipulate these people, neither does Jesus. He relies on the divine power, and that's hard for us sometimes. You know, if you're talking with somebody you really care about, about the gospel that maybe doesn't believe it, you know, don't change it. You can't make it any better than it already is. I mean, it's pretty good. And <laughs> I mean, if you just focus on Jesus, you got enough. You don't need to clean it up. Let him, if you, if you come to somebody and say, hey, you are a, a, a person that God, if you don't believe in Jesus, God sees you as someone that's at enmity with him. They can say, well, I don't agree with that. It's like, well, I can't do anything about that. All you can say is what I told you is true. Whether they believe it is up to them. You can try to say it nicely. You don't have to start with you're going to hell. Um, Jesus never did that. Um, they didn't talk about it. Uh, so the preaching of the cross, we've seen this. We see this in Romans too. It, it brings great displays of God's power. I think we see it in our own church. Now, again, we'll be talking about power. We'll hit that when we hit these next couple verses. Where in the lives of believers, including Corinth, things change. You, you're able to, you're, you're, the things that go good in your life are better and the things that go bad aren't as bad because you have the main thing, as they say. Uh, this is the, the divine power. It demolishes those things that try to tear us down. But the key verse is verse 5, and it's one you should remember. You know, we destroy arguments. I love that. We destroy arguments and every opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. That's a good verse. So this is the idea. This is what spiritual warfare really is. You think about our culture. You think about the culture back then. What were the biggest problems? What is Paul writing about to the Corinthians? What does he write about in 1 Timothy and Romans and Ephesians and Galatians? Who Jesus is and what Jesus did. We have to get that right. If you don't get that right, the rest of it doesn't really matter. You're just moving deck chairs around on a sinking ship. It doesn't matter. Because we, you know, we all know that. We're all going to die sometime. That's always a nice philosophy to live by in some ways, right? Because it's true. Um, the big question is what happens when that happens. That's, that's kind of what Jesus came to deal with, right? But this is what spiritual warfare is. In the end, it's a battle for ideas and the mind. And you think about today, isn't that it? We were actually looking at Genesis 3 uh, today in our Hebrews class because Hebrews is obviously written to Hebrews, which are Jews who are trying to convince them 
that the new covenant is fulfilling all the old covenants. Uh, and so we went back to Genesis 3, and this is the battle of ideas. The knockish, this Satan character comes and says, did God really say? That's the same thing you see everywhere, right? If you have a, a discussion with somebody about a social issue or a biblical issue, and, you know, it really comes down to a battle for ideas. Is this loving? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this honoring to God? Is this dishonoring God? Well, how would one know? Well, look at what he said. We destroy arguments. And every opinion that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, well, where do we get the knowledge of God? Where did Adam and Eve get the knowledge of God? Did Adam and Eve sit down for a while and talk about it and have a little small group and say, you know, we should have at least one commandment. Do you like that tree over there? Never really cared for it. Always wanted to move it. Well, let's say we can't eat that. Then we'll have a commandment. Well, now we have a religion. Is that the way it worked? No, you go back in Genesis 2, and God told Adam that this was the commandment. Where did the knowledge of God come from? It came from revealed, the revelation of God. That's what we think the Bible is. And all, the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus. So, if you really want to be a true Christian, you've got to think like Jesus. And how do you think like Jesus? You go to the knowledge that he gives you, which is both the text and the spirit that helps us when we get regenerated and believe in him. So it's a kind of a twofold thing. So it's spiritual warfare is not a power encounter where we have incantations to get spirits to go into certain places. And Jesus didn't have any incantations either, did he? I just loved it. You, out. Okay. Don't send us into the abyss. You know, there's just, it, 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 there's, no, there's no war there. The war is over. You know, it, that, it, it's one. It's just these battles that you have. And so the parallel passage of this is Ephesians 6. And you probably know, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but you, you, it's such a nice poetic way of putting it um, that it's good. It's this armor of God, you know. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, we talked with the kids about angels. Um, never seen one. Well, Christmas cards. Um, but I don't think they probably look like that. If you want a really good, some good pictures of angels, get some of those Kingstone uh, comic uh, Bibles. Boy, those dudes are ripped. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, think about it, you know, if, you, you know, we were talking about most of the time you see this at the uh, Christmas time. But like if you, if we just read that in the women's Bible study in Luke 2, you know, you've got an angel appears to the shepherds. And, and they were what? Kind of casual? Were they like, oh, this is cool? They were afraid. Well, what are they afraid of? Well, maybe because there was somebody there that wasn't there earlier. But if you look in the Kingstone thing, I mean, this dude is, it's like no one to be trifled with. Um, they're, you know, who knows what they look like, but they're afraid, you know, because this is an imposing force, a, 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 a creature that, in, that has no sin, radiant. Uh, how can they see them if they're spiritual? I mean, you know, God can do what he wants. I don't, I don't know. I always wondered if they went over and went like this, would they go through them? Or would it be... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> gotta go back. Uh, but there's a fear there because of the imposing nature of them. But there's also, we know from the scriptures, there's some that are against God. Um, 
There, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So this is the problem. Here's your solution. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, stand firm. So it's about standing against evil. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. And then it goes on, and you can read through what that is. And again, welcome to text me if you do. The, uh, the idea of this armor, and I've, I've heard people say, well, every morning I get up and put on the armor of God. You know, metaphorically, I hope. Uh, you know, you really should never take it off. You know, what happens at night? <laughs> I hope you don't take the armor off, you know. It, the, it's all, it's metaphoric, but look how it starts. Having fastened the belt of truth. Why do they start with that? Now, again, we don't, we don't do this much. I mean, if we were going to do, you know, we've got some military people in here. It's like you, you wouldn't, you didn't wear stuff like they did back then. I mean, you didn't have, I was walking, where were we at? A, we were at a football game, and there was some police officers, this was in Council Bluffs. And I was looking at the police officer's belt, and I'm like, can you get any, anything else on there? My gosh, I think there's more stuff on his belt than my house. How do you get around, you know? So it would be different for them. But think about, what's the belt for? Well, it kind of was that back then. A Roman soldier, I mean, the first thing is it kind of holds up your pants. <laughs> I mean, it's, it keeps everything together. That's one thing that's very nice about a belt. He, held, he holds the garments in place because if you're running around doing your, you don't want to trip over your stuff. Um, but it also held the weapons and some defensive armor hung from it. So this is the metaphor he's telling to the Ephesians. They would have seen Roman soldiers. You know, if he was writing it to us, he might put grenades and stuff and all this and nightsticks and all that, but they didn't have those back then. Um, but the analogy of truth is the core. This is, in going back to our scripture, we demolish arguments. What's the, you know, what's the logical idea there? That there are some ideas that are godly and honor him, and there are some ideas that don't. And we have to find out which ones are which. You know, Paul was darn sure he was right, and you know what? Jesus was darn sure that he was right. They didn't kill him because he was just like, well, whatever you think. They killed him because he wouldn't, he wouldn't capitulate. He wouldn't give up on what he thought was true. I am the way, the truth, he says. And that's what we'll get to. So Jesus, he talks about this a lot in John. You see this everywhere. But truth is the key. Not subjective truth. Whatever you think is true is fine. Whatever you think is true. That's not biblical, folks. Ultimately, it doesn't really make any difference what you think is true. It only makes a difference what is actually true. You know, that's what we always have to go with, right? Truth is never presented, especially God's truth, as subjective, that we just get to pick what we want. It's always objective. This is it. And you look at this, if there's no objective truth, how do we destroy arguments if we don't know what's true and what's false? It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus, in John 8, to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, hmm, that's kind of cool, you abide in my word. Well, now we got, we got a method. You are truly my disciples, which implies what? If you don't abide in my word, I don't know about the disciple thing, dudes. Um, look on our website, lots of Bible studies. Not full yet, plenty of openings. Uh, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We're not talking about the truth of quantum mechanics or... You know, how many bushels of soybeans you can get, although they're important. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about his word is truth. And then the truth will set you free. 
you know, we get this on buildings and uh, law schools and all this. The truth will set you free. And, you know, it's plagiarized for one because they don't put John 8.32. And then, and then it's taken out of context. It's not just the truth of anything. It's Jesus' truth. You know, get your own sins. That's the only way you know. It's a great, these are great verses, but truth is the key, and the implication is that you can know it. How mean would it be of God to say, you need to know all the truth, but I'm going to kind of trick you to figure out. You've got to go through a maze and find out special incantations and do all kinds of weird things. You pretty much just have to read it and study it. Uh, we had that Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You can depend on what I say. That's what Jesus says. We're putting all our eggs in the Jesus basket. And then I like this was before in the trial, the way Jesus puts it. Then Pilate says to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Well, what is that purpose? To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's a strong statement. And the implication is if you don't, listen to his voice, you're not of the truth. And that doesn't always win friends and influence people, I realize that. I mean, this was pretty good, right? I mean, this is good stuff. And so I'm sure he got out of it, right? They didn't kill him or anything. You know, he said the truth and what happened. So don't be thinking, well, I'll tell him the truth and everybody say, you know, you're so smart and you've got the truth of Jesus. Boy, let's, let, this is great. It doesn't always work that way, folks. It can. But then Pilate says, you know, what is truth? Is he listening? Doesn't sound like it. Um, that would be an interesting, if anybody likes to write fiction, uh, take character like this and write what you think happened to him afterward. That'd be a good book series. I'd buy it. You know, what happened to Pilate? You know, did he end up believing? Did he end up not? He has that whole dream thing with the wife. You know, there's a lot of weird things that go on. But you wonder about some of these encounters with people. There's a lot of people that we hear about Jesus interacts with, and then we don't ever hear about him again. Um, we could come up with our own ideas, I guess, and, and do our own thing there. So, so this is truth. That's the key. So the Christian worldview, which is what we've been talking about, reflects the way the world really is. That it, it does. It does it the best. That's why we're here, I hope. Yet Satan, as we've seen earlier, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving who are held captive by him to do his will. So don't be surprised that people don't listen all the time. It's really impossible for them to understand unless something changes in their heart. So when we confront the deceptions of the devil with truth, though, God helps us expose the lies. That's our job. Our job is to be faithful with the truth, not necessarily shove it down somebody's throat so they believe it whether they like it or not. You know, Jesus didn't do that. Neither should we. So it's all only important that a disciple of Jesus have true knowledge. That's what we've been about, you know, teaching each person to trust in Jesus. It's an ongoing thing. Making disciples, as Jesus said, it's an ongoing thing. You never stop trying to be a better disciple. But the way to do that is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, the Holy Spirit reminds us of things. It's really hard for him. He can do it, but it, it, it doesn't seem like he reminds us of stuff we don't already know very often. That's not reminding, that's telling, right? Have that ever happened to you where you're talking to somebody or, I don't know, having an encounter with somebody and then a scripture comes to mind? 
Now that may be just because you're smart, uh, and that's fine, but it may be a little guidance there. You know, remember that? Oh yeah, good thing I read that yesterday. <laughs> you know, that's the things reminding us, taking every thought captive. If we can do this, we're in good shape. That's what we're supposed to do. And then verse 6, he's talking about obedience. He's going to punish those ideas and the people who bring them. That's what he's talking about in this whole letter because he wants to make sure we get Jesus right. So let's finish up with the rest of this fairly quickly in these next two little sections. Verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remain, remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves to one another, they are without understanding. So he wants to have these Corinthians take every thought captive, and it means submitting to his apostolic authority. Now, just to let you know, there aren't any more apostles out there. I, my opinion, I, there are people who think they are out there. Some of them are on television. I, I disagree. Uh, you... So what does it mean to be under the apostles' authority? If, are we supposed to be under the apostles' authority? I think so. It's just, it's the Bible. The apostles wrote this. This is what the authority they were under, and obviously the Bible's under the authority of God, uh, the triune God. But he's saying, I'll, I'll consider you completely obedient when you actually take me as your leader, as they say. And obviously they... They were having some problems, you know. Grievance collecting is a favorite pastime of spiritual babies. That, that line came to me. I don't know if that was the Holy Spirit or the, the coffee. Um, both. But that's a good line. <laughs> I, I like, you know, we do that. You know, when it, the, the more spiritually immature people are, the more they, uh, can't use that word, complain. Uh, Paul wants them to grow up. Just to bop over to chapter 3, just because I want to. The, uh, it's kind of the way he puts it there is pretty good. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need some letter of recommendation? Uh, verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered, rest, written not with ink, but on tablets of human hearts. And then verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to know by Reddit Ball. So he's, he's saying that you need to grow up and act like you're someone who believes. And I think that's part of the problem in our churches. Um, we're not to be children or adolescent rebels when it comes, but mature adults capable of dealing rationally and compassionately with each other the same way those words we started with. I think we need to, to think of those things and remember, remember that we're supposed to take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. Well, does Christ like it when we bicker about things that really don't ultimately matter? Or does Christ like it when we can't come to an agreement when as Christians are told clearly to come to agreement when we're at odds with each other? I think Paul would probably come and say, why don't you grow up? And I, I don't think he means that quite as flippant as that sounds. Um, really, I mean, let's, let's act like mature adults. Um, 
I mean, I'm glad in your life you never have any conflict with each other, but sometimes it happens. And that's just going to happen. Y you know, the people you're closest to are the ones that are hurt you the most. Not because they're trying to hurt you, but because they're the closest to you. <laughs> Get that? If you don't have a close relationship with you, what do I care what they think? It's when we know each other well. But we're told, we had that whole series on forgiveness. You can go back and look at that if you want. Um, and can text me if you do. <laughs> I don't know why that keeps coming back, but that's okay. But again, that, that if you're, you see this, uh, you can usually see how strong somebody is in the Lord. You know, we can always have grievances. That's fine, and you should bring them. But if it's just every little thing, you know, that's a, it gets to a point where it's like a three-year-old not wanting to eat their beans. You know, grow up. You know, that's kind of what we have to do, be more mature. So let's finish up here these last few verses. But we will not boast, verse 13, beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So again, the, the problem is ignorance. And if you're boasting in yourself, you're not understanding what it means to be humble and all those types of things. So the Apostle Paul, knowing how risky boasting can be, limits his boasting to his own area of work and is guided by that rule. If we boast, we boast in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? You've got to be careful with this. He's already used this in chapter 1. It doesn't mean you can't, if somebody says, well, that was good, you have to say, oh, no, no, that was terrible. You know, we tend to do that, right? You know, guy catches five touchdown passes all with one hand. That was really good. Oh, no, 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 no I'm terrible. <laughs> that's, that, that's, not, that's not real humility. I mean, say thanks. I don't know. Um, but, you know, maybe say something like I'm, I feel blessed by God to have the ability to do that. You'll see even athletes do that. But anything, you know, I've always said with the sermons, you know, when you hear afterwards, that was a good sermon. What am I supposed to say? Nobody ever has ever come up, I'll probably, I know I'm going to get this today because I'm going to say it. That was really bad. <laughs> what were you thinking of? Um, it'd make it easier to be humble, I guess. <laughs> but what do you say? I mean, I, I, it's okay to take and say, you know, yeah, I did work pretty hard on that. You know, maybe, maybe I'm glad that helped you. But it's not like, you know, look at me, I'm an, I'm an apostle, follow what I say. I'm not an apostle, don't follow what I say, follow what the word says. And hopefully I've brought some depth to that word more by the sermon than you had before you would have read it by yourself. That's part of what we're supposed to be doing here, same in there. So don't, you know, false humility is silly. Um, and I think we know when we're boasting and when we're not, right? We know our motives. Um, I mean, ultimately, if, if it's the best sermon ever preached, but nobody gets closer to Jesus, what difference does it make? And if it's really not that good and a few people do, it probably does make a difference. Kind of what Paul was talking about at the beginning. So, so within this whole framework, you know, Paul is, wants to boast only about growing trust of the Corinthians themselves in him because he's a true apostle, because there are his letter of recommendation. He led them to the Lord. I mean, if you've done that, don't you want to know how they're doing? 
you know, how sad it is to lead someone to the Lord and find out later that they kind of unled themselves to the Lord. He doesn't want that. That's what this whole letter is about. So to summarize here, what, what's he doing? Well, Paul's encouraging the Corinthian believers to be obedient to Christ, and this helps us. For them, it means acknowledging that he's a true apostle. For us, it's acknowledging his apostleship, that of the other writers of the New Testament, that this is truly words from God that we can count on, that this is the truth that we're to supposed to be taking every thought captive to that when we boast, we boast in the Lord and give thanks for what he's given us. But, and again, spiritual war. Don't think of it, there's movies out there. Don't think of it as this power encounter and incantations and all this stuff. It should be much easier for you now. You destroy arguments. You destroy ideas. You try to have conversations with people about the truth of the gospel and everything that Jesus taught and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you do that, the rest of it will take care of itself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of Paul, trying to commend himself to them because these were the, the people that he brought to know you. Uh, as we think about spiritual battles, may we always think that it is a counter with truth. May each one of us recommit ourselves to the truth of the gospel, the, the truth of Jesus, the truth that we had communion about, that we have a connection with you because of him if we accept the grace by faith. May we walk in your spirit this week. Amen.